0: integrity professionalism and accountability what a shame these values have all gone to pot at a time that rishi sunak has made them the cornerstone of his premiership perhaps very unwise nadim zahawi so unlikely to survive the week that the daily stars decided not even to invest in a lettuce regarding his tenure as Conservative chair despite having this bust up with a massive fine imposed by the Inland Revenue. Uh, We look also at the BBC where Richard Sharp, its its new chair, is found to have facilitated a whopping loan for Boris Johnson in the run-up to his appointment. Ooh -ah. We discuss BBC Scotland's plans to axe music programmes and much besides. Those are the headlines, now for the podcast.
1: chums and welcome to this week's leslie riddick podcast and bizarrely both leslie and i were let off the hook on thursday night and attended the business for scotland annual dinner 2022 yes i know it's 2023 but it's the business Dinner for 2022 and i made a a shocking discovery, Leslie, uh, which is that uh, wearing jeans lulls one into a false sense of security in the waistline department because my jacket was fastened throughout the entire evening to disguise the, yes, I may be a 30 inch waist, but that's below the belly because that was, it was a disaster. But I'm speaking to everybody else, uh, uh, oh, well, I don't several of
0: so you. I think you're somewhat somewhat exaggerating I mean you look tremendous I think everybody did and everybody was complaining about the way that their uh, their clothes had shrunk in the wardrobe yes. over two three years of of, of of lack of use so I think there was a lot of people kind of standing up <laughs> after a while yeah. because it was easier than sitting down oh, yeah. so but many thanks to Simon Forrest uh from Nova uh, which is the tidal energy company uh which has indeed installed the world's first array of tidal turbines off Shetland Um, and is pioneering tidal technology who took the table there and invited us along and also I mean god you know what a what a treat for us arranged hotel rooms so that people you're so thoughtful because you know if you go to stuff in Glasgow it's the same problem with Celtic connections Uh, you know you're you're scrambling to get the last train or bus or whatever it is home praying that it doesn't Break down, get cancelled, or whatever else, and just generally, then it stops everywhere, and it wrecks the night. You know, by the time you get home, it feels like whatever you've just been at was another, you know, life away. Never mind just just you know the other end of of the of the motorway. So it was uh, it was tremendous, and uh, you know, lots of crack and meeting people that you haven't seen yeah. for absolutely ages, and so on. And actually, one thing um, which is what I was looking at before we spoke. Um, I was speaking one of the many people I spoke to was Michael Gray, who I, th- I think Scotia is no more uh, Scotia with a K that he he ran with two or three other folk that were doing lots of interviews and kind of trying to, you know, p- pull up the youth end of uh, of things. Uh, Michael used to the first time I met Michael, he was running uh, some debates in the I, I think it was the Anarchist Society of Glasgow University. It was something odd. It, were, it was the philosophical something. Anyway, attention to detail problems. And I was at uh, the first debate in this bizarre debating chamber, which basically has a massive hole in the middle where the audience is thinking of somewhere beneath you. Honestly, too weird. Um, but Michael has been is a thoughtful, funny guy who's now a solicitor uh, and uh, is training and is trained in that department and sort of shifted his life a bit. In that direction. So we were having a bit of chat and, you know, a lot of people were worrying about the lack of um, of seeing young, young faces there. And uh, he actually sent me a tweet afterwards saying that it was lovely to see you last night. Funny coincidence that this was happening with 14000 young folk next door in the hydro at the time we were speaking about youth engagement uh, problems. You know kind of mm-hmm. in the movement and that event was um a, a band called the 1975s confusingly right not from that era which is why you and i didn't recognize the name but uh, <laughs> this is this is a bit of a cult band apparently she said showing her complete ignorance of everything that's going on and the lead singer Matty healy had declared in that gig that scotland should be independent right as we were next door worrying about yeah. <laughs> kind of the next generation, as it were. So it was kind of like a nice, nice wee touch there because stuff's happening. It's maybe you can't actually seem to wheel people out to gigs. Um, as a, as I discovered from speaking to a, a couple of um, MPs uh, and MSPs who were there, uh, there's problems even setting up yes groups and, and SNP groups. And, and as far as they understand, any other kind of political group within universities at the moment. People are just not, students seem to be not interested in joining that, interested in issues about gender, uh, gender equality and trans rights, um, interested in still in climate crisis, because obviously it'll always be the big thing that's facing them, but just not into joining political groups and organisations. But anyway, you know, that was a sort of little cheery moment. So, um, yeah, it was obviously a bit of a big night all round.
1: Yeah, and it was a cheery moment for you, thanks to you, because I'd gone on a fruitless search uh, for the national table, which was filled with young people, for Laura Webster, one of my former students, who is now, g- g- I can hardly believe I'm saying it at such an early age, uh, and well deserved editor of the national. And she was uh, cheery, upbeat, really embracing the 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 role and it was tremendous to see and that enthusiasm came through completely there but but thanks to you leslie she found me i didn't find her and Again, it's to discover the fact that the newsroom is starting to fill up with former students who've been through five College, some of whom went on to, to university afterwards. But, uh, you know, it, it, it was an injection of youth there. And it does remember the story that, that when Laura was with us uh, during the independence campaign, she set up a, a website called Have I Got News for Youth, which absolutely mercilessly ripped off the logo, the style, etc. of I Got News for You, who very nicely got in touch with her and said, Uh, can you stop that we're not going to do anything about it but can you stop that please we'd be really grateful if you did but that she's now editor of the national it's fantastic to see
0: yeah it is and actually the whole table uh, I mean many people remarked on this that they've just met either the editor or you know one of the reporters or whatever from the national and they were all so young you know I mean in contrast I think probably that age profile is really quite different to a lot of news well very Mm -hmm. different to a lot of newspapers but, you know, even those guys were working all the way yes. through that night. You know, they were trying to get an interview with Nicola Sturgeon, who did a talk, did her speech. I mean, there's nothing nothing new in it. I think they were struggling to get any lines out of it mm-hmm. and left immediately afterwards. Um, and they were there all the way out the door <laughs> trying to, you know, get any extra wee lines or, you know, uh, to, to no avail. But, I mean, they, the energy that these guys have, and, uh, I mean, in dealing with them at the moment, over the uh, lights on March, which is indeed exactly a week away. Uh, this time next week, we'll be doing the podcast and then I'll be shooting off to Edinburgh to get organised for this procession and, and rally. Uh, uh, you know, speaking to the National over that, it, it, it's actually, it's it, having dealt with so many different newspapers over the years, this is just completely different because it's not like dealing with people who essentially don't give a toss and just want to get your word count in by a certain deadline. There's a sort of, you know, sense of mission and, and a shared sense of mission, and you can put suggestions to them. Would you like? What about this? Uh, it's it's. I don't think there's probably another newspaper in Britain, certainly. And I'm not even sure. Actually, I don't know how other papers in areas that are, are engaged in a kind of campaign, perhaps like Catalonia, maybe they have the same sort of relationship, but it's utterly unique and again for anybody who you know that people they take pelters for being too worshipful for the snp or whatever else pelters that they've taken but by gum this is a precious precious thing that you'll you'll not realize the the use the the usefulness of until it's gone so if you can subscribe and they've always got very good offers on please do the end
1: of the well i think there's i think there's a free subscription offer on just now so I, mm. I believe so, when having, having looked at it. But but turning to the, uh, I, I'm glad you spoke about Nicola Sturgeon's speech, but given my age profile, again, I actually had to leave uh, to, to visit the facilities after about uh, 10 minutes of it and didn't want to walk back in. So I didn't deserve it. So I waited for the, the applause. But I thought Gordon McIntyre-Kemp was very, very interesting uh, from Business for Scotland, particularly, and you said at the time, he put up one graphic, Leslie, that you can talk about that actually should be this could be the sole promotional uh, hook to hang a Scottish independence campaign on, which was gross domestic product per head of population in comparative countries. Sounds very dry, but it was amazing when you saw it as as an animation.
0: Yeah. And that's was it. That's was it because it was like a little kind of almost like a little film because it had a it had five, five. It was like a bar chart with five or six countries. Um, You know, the bars going across the way. It was showing where their what their gross domestic product was at different times in their history. It started off back in the 1970s. So it was really tracking it quite a long way. Um, At that point, the UK was, you know, not too bad. But Norway and Denmark, I sort of remember, were probably marginally better. Ireland? Nowhere. Yeah. The basket case, the peasant country, you know, nothing. So time rolls on and this then moves all the the, the the kind of bars then begin to shift and they shift as they pass each significant piece of our history um, through all sorts of different, you know, strikes, three day weeks, um, financial crashes, membership of the EU, then, of course, Brexit. And throughout this whole time, Ireland is basically shifting literally physically on the bar chart. Ireland is shifting up the the chart until when it comes to that key indicator of growth. By the end of it, where we are now, Ireland's at the top, yes. actually beating Norway and Denmark at the moment, which made me think, is that actual actual GDP or growth in GDP? But whichever it is, Ireland has shot up and the UK is sitting pretty much at the bottom now. And in a way, that was I think that one animation done well with just a voiceover by somebody recognisable like Martin Comston or something would actually be well worth putting in as a television advert because it's utterly jaw dropping. And it kind of pulls all the stuff we'll end up talking about today. It pulls it into one understandable basket so that instead of talking separately about all the vexatious aspects of life at the moment, from strikes to low pay to underperforming health service to just everything that's wrong with the country, particularly on the economic front, you just see that actually Britain has has actually just fallen off the, the, the cliff, essentially, and has been doing it slowly since Thatcher, but actually a little bit before. And And, and those other countries that nobody will actually make comparisons with, the small successful countries particularly of the Nordics, but Ireland dismissed as a basket case with a terrible uh, depression of its own after the 2008 financial yep. crash. There it is. It it bounced back and it's it's doing away and we will not manage to repeat anything like all the little changes, all the budgets that we'll focus on in, in March, all the marginal changes, all the Unbelievable discussions about whether it's now time to have tax cuts because, you know, we're not now at 400 percent inflation. So, whoa, maybe we can actually start a tax cutting agenda when all public services are absolutely on their knees. That that graph is the story of the, the just the, 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 the terminal decline that follows listening to conservative mania,
1: which is basically what it's been. Yeah, I mean, and the other aspect of it was it at one, it becomes an actual sprint when you see the Irish GDP just scrolling through so quickly in the past few years. But Brexit, an absolute uh, turning point in that 2016. I mean, you could see you could see what happened at that point. And that, that's the whole thing. The broad shoulders of the UK. Look how poorly the UK is doing. And look how poorly is Scotland is doing within the framework of the UK. Uh but that brings us on to to, to a point about Brexit, because uh, I don't know if you saw Anna Sarwar uh, being interviewed by Martin Geisler on, on Sunday, where he, where Geisler, uh, and this is an important point, actually went to town on what about Brexit. He he listed the, the negative effects of Brexit and then said to Sarwar, isn't Keir Starmer, in order to try to satisfy the red wall, throwing the rest of the electorate down down the drain because he thinks he's got to plough that Conservative furrow and saying Brexit is done and dusted? To which Sarwar turned around and said, well, you see, it's divisive. It's just like you've got leave and remain, you've got yes and no. And I'm going, hold on a minute here. He's comparing yet again Brexit with the, the Scottish independence referendum and he said no what we've got to do is develop a better relationship with the eu when he was asked how to do this answer came there none and he repeated the mantra develop a better relationship with the eu when we're not picking fights with them but that was a clear example of for once i think uh you've spoken about leslie of the bbc actually tackling the brexit issue but it was done on the, the sunday show with martin Gasler.
0: Well, it could have been related to the fact that the lead story in the Sunday National was actually a poll about uh, how the majority of people in Scotland don't think the BBC has done a good job of reporting on the impacts of Brexit. So they'd done a poll on this and uh, Uh they'd found that actually 53 percent thought the BBC hadn't reported accurately on Brexit's impact, either at all or not very well as against, um, oh, I'm adding up the, the various bits, 18 percent who thought they'd somewhat accurately reported. So 53 against 18, 25 percent didn't know. So, you know, most people just think, yeah, what have we actually seen? And I, I, I'm I'm quoted in this. Um, in fact, some of this arose from um, the fact that w- we in Time for Scotland, the We Group is putting on the They they did the Supreme Court rally and now we're doing the one next uh, Tuesday, the the Brexit day one. Um, I was contacted by French public television about two weeks ago um, who are coming over to uh, what they wanted to do was exactly this. They wanted to interview people who had been harmed essentially by Brexit in Scotland, get a bit of their story and then follow them coming to the rally which, as you can imagine, is sort of like a wee bit of a job on the setup front, you know. uh, uh, But I thought, oh well, you know, and then when I thought about it, I thought, hang on a minute. Why aren't we doing this? You know, just leave the coming to the even to the Brexit rally. Although given that 72 percent of Scots want to rejoin the EU, I'm not sure how the BBC Scotland would actually stand on that being a massively controversial thing to come to. You know, but anyway, even let's park that. Why are we not getting the BBC, a public broadcaster, just doing chapter and verse on beneath the surface? Because that's what they're paid to do to delve and then paid to do it interestingly, convincingly and put it on at prime time. Is to tell the various stories behind the scenes of how Brexit has actually stuffed the economy. Now, I mean, in anecdotal ways, I think everybody's got one that they can tell everyone, you know, whether it's I'm up north a lot having seen the number of places that used to be restaurants that are now takeaway because you can't get the staff whether it's the NHS whether it's care every time you watch an interview and you you, you hear about staff shortages you're coming back to the difficulties that, that arise from not having freedom of movement the, the, so we decided, OK, let's try and do something about this ourselves. No resources at all. But hey, what what the heck? <laughs> you know? um, and happily, we did have a resource because actually after Derek Bateman's funeral, um, there was quite a lot of us that were former BBC folk who bumped into one another, including Ken McDonald, who uh, left the BBC in, in 2020, I think. Ken would be a familiar voice to many people yeah. if they listen to Radio Scotland because he was the fabulously exuberant science correspondent. um, And he also presented Good Morning Scotland, particularly at the weekends. Um, So anyway, Ken has, now that he's left, the been able to come out as a yeser and has has jumped up to the task and is now going around with our stalwart uh, camera person, Stuart Kerr-Brown from West Lothian. Um, The two of them are going around doing little films of people who've got something to say about Brexit and editing it and we're sticking them out on social media, even as we speak, um, which is difficult given that we're also organising a rally that arguably could have been organised by a political party with a large budget. It just feels (laughs) like we're doing a lot of things other people should be doing.
1: Um,
0: So I had said something to that effect in this uh, article on Sunday. Uh, which might well have. I mean, you know, Martin is well capable of choosing his a line of argument. Yes. and Quite obviously, the one uh, the kind of dissonance that there is on Brexit between Scotland and uh, and Keir Starmer is kind of pretty major. So it wouldn't really need any prompting. But nonetheless, this has put a particular focus on the BBC. But um, which, of course, was rather chucked into the mix by having this inquiry going on about the appointment of Richard Sharp. Um, yes. as the chairman of the BBC. Um, but, but Ken, uh, and it's this this is, I'll give a great tribute to him because you're never quite sure. I, I check every time before I mention anything about somebody because, you know, I, I am at the forefront of a lot of things. Um, a lot of the guys that are in the Time for Scotland group don't want to live quite that, you know, far forward and, you know, the public eye. Um, And a lot of people don't because you do take pelters and, you know, it does wreck your earning capacity, as in completely. Uh, So, you know, there's reasons people might want to be, you know, low key. But Ken, he's jumped right in. So he's here quoted in this article um, in The National and by gum, he just completely doesn't pull his punches. I mean, he's saying the BBC built its reputation on trust in its journalism. This poll suggests many Scots don't trust it. Why could that be? Its chairman, Sir Richard Sharp, has given 400,000 quid to the Tory party and is a former advisor to Boris Johnson. Yep. Just last month, he said the BBC had a liberal bias, but the institution was fighting against it. He didn't con- disclose how it was doing that and then he lists director general tim davy former tory candidate the bbc board includes sir robbie gibb former head of the bbc's political programs who left the corporation to become Theresa mays director of communications at 10 downing street so he, he basically goes down a whole long list of all of this and is basically pointing out the matter of fact that the bbc is riddled with people who have been either tory candidates or have skipped as advisors between the government and the BBC. And then you come back to this question of trust, you know, that's implicit in how the BBC has to operate. And of course, people will conclude that this works its way right up the food chain to mean that BBC Scotland, in a country that massively supports the EU, is not getting coverage about the damage to our economy of not being in the EU.
1: Yeah. I mean it it was the 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 thing is saying you were talking about the 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 chairs of the the bbc under the old trust and the the board system and the narrative that was being punted was that well of course you've got to realize when it's a a conservative government they'll appoint conservatives nothing to see here when it's a labor government they will appoint labor people i went back and had a look at this and tony blair appointed two tories you know richard Ryder, michael grade cameron now cameron fully enough appointed Tories and the, the that's the change that has taken place that no matter who's in power it seems to be a conservative for some reason that's appointed chair of the BBC and the, the thing about it is that you're getting these conflicting narratives when I mean, we look at the, the situation where, where Johnson is turning around and saying the BBC's vanishing up his own fundament in this and there isn't a ding-dang link between any of this and uh, Richard Sharp knew nothing at all about his finances. But Sharp was the man who actually made the contact with this distant cousin, Sam Blythe, the Canadian multi-millionaire uh, on the basis that uh, he wanted to help out Johnson with an £800,000 line of credit because Johnson couldn't obviously get by in the 160 or 1,000 pounds a year, etc., that he was earning as, as Prime Minister. There is a direct link there, but it goes beyond that to the what we've actually got used to. And you're right, is that we have a continuing series of conservative-leaning and conservative politicians and people with conservative links being appointed right throughout the BBC. And the relief that was felt when Sharp was appointed was, you're not going to get Charles Moore. Oh, hooray! That's that. That's that's scant praise when it's, when you're cheering for the fact that it's not it's not Charles Moore who was appointed. But the, the the thing about it is, is that that Sharp's had to refer himself on this, um, and he did not declare any link. He didn't declare any link at all between himself and Boris Johnson. They knew about the donations because there's nothing that says that you should be debarred because of political connections or giving donations to political parties but it, do, it is it does seem to be coming through that no matter who's in power a conservative will be appointed a chair of the BBC and it's that permeation as well that goes right across civil society we can see more and more people with conservative backgrounds conservative donors being appointed to significant roles in public life
0: Yep. And, uh, you know, it, it's seen as now just you end up quibbling. You know, we've just had a whole yeah. all that that stuff is just quibble, basically, because they just should this just shouldn't be happening. I mean, we've either got a public service broadcaster that has to bend over backwards to not. I mean, is the world so starved of talent that the only people that actually can be found to put into prominent positions happen to also have worked for the Conservative Party? Yeah. You know, it just beggars belief but you, you end up, you know, we end up sort of here in with the minor detail of stuff. This is just utterly ridiculous. And I mean, I've, I've been looking at um, at some of the the stuff that Tom Nairn has written, who died mm, sadly yeah. a couple of days ago. He was 90 and he was by gum. He was some guy, actually, and had quite a progression in his writing through his lifetime. But I mean, a lot of what he wrote about, um, particularly when it came to the the, the monarchy, he wrote about that in the Enchanted Glass but it was kind of about the um, almost the sort of fascination that uh, that that the, the 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 monarchy and that these sort of almost pseudo monarchs that yeah. arise, particularly within dynasties of political parties, exercise over and you'd have to say part of the British electorate, particularly down south. But perhaps right across, you know, I've got a wee thing on my laptop at the moment that's I've got a picture of Jacob Rees-Mogg and says something to the effect of bull, you know, spoken in a posh accent is still bull. Yes. You have to keep reminding yourself of this because they are to the manner born and in, in our upbringing, less so in Scotland, but still it's there. Um, There's something that's spring loaded to respond to a certain accent, a patrician kind of norm of control. And so you have to kind of pull your brain out of somewhere. Um, Of course, you can point out as well that the Tories are certainly full of kind of northern voices, you know, who now think they are to the manner born. So it's Mm. not necessarily just the southern accents that work. But this this idea that you would, oh, you know, it's you're making a fuss about nothing if you keep complaining about about who's appointed to what, because it feels to everybody like it's kind of above their pay grade. It's not normal things they're worried about. Um, they're more focused on the, the, the multiple problems and challenges of living and whether yeah. or not there's a strike today. And if indeed they're involved in a strike, what, how they're hoping to end that with some resolution that doesn't mean they're massively out of pocket and how we all basically manage to survive and what kids are going to face. And so all of that feels real. And these small questions of who gets promoted into what position and you don't know any of their names anyway, it means nothing. And so it's all been essentially allowed to slip because you have to trust that these institutions work on a certain basis. And they have not been working on that for a very long time. I remember being in the BBC when Marmaduke Hussey, otherwise known as Duke Hussey, was appointed as the chairman of the Board of Governors in 1986. I've had to look up here because I can't sort of quite remember the years, but I just started at the BBC then. Um, And, you know, I can remember at the time there was kind of total astonishment that somebody uh, who was, you know, in the Lords um, had... Uh, You know, close contacts to the Tories at the time. Um, That was quite astonishing, basically, that um, that that he was he was brought in, because within months of joining the Beeb, he'd actually forced the resignation of Alistair Milne um, after a series of rows between the BBC and the Conservative government. Um, So. That was a real turning point, actually, way back then. And of course, as time goes on, nobody's, you know, nobody's around enough to remember exactly how this all started. But it's it is indeed slippery slopes. And uh, that slippery slope has now got to a stage where you would well wonder, you know, well wonder when you see editorial decisions being made, quite how explicit some sort of direction has been behind the scenes.
1: Yeah, I mean, because that's the the key point you made about the dismissal of Alistair Nolan, because that's one of the duties and responsibilities of the chair is they can dismiss the director general. So, yeah, and it, 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 it links into um, a, a, a demonstration, a rally that took place in Glasgow. And, and I, we spoke about it last week in, in doing a bit more digging. And, and there was a great article by Pat Kane uh, in the National on this, uh, which was a a, a day in Glasgow, which was related to that famous 1958 uh, photograph of uh, African-American jazz musicians in Harlem, uh, which was a great day in Harlem. And it was uh, organized by Tommy Smith, the internationally known saxophonist. And this may seem esoteric to everybody, that what they're looking at doing with BBC Radio Scotland is cancelling classical music, jazz and piping, you know. And people say, "Ah, well, wait a minute here. And what Pat did, and I I was doing it as well, so I read a bit about what he wrote, and what I was looking at it as well is, I I examined BBC Radio Scotland's output just for today. And it's, it's lengthy programmes, a lot of talk in the morning. It then kicks in with Janice Forsyth, the, the afternoon show, which is arts, entertainment, music, then back to talk for a couple of hours with John Beatty, and then get it on Brian Burnett, and then Ricky Ross another other country, Roddy Hart, and then it, it kicks in at 12 o'clock to Radio 5 Live. And the BBC has already made over the past think is think uh five years has made something like a billion pounds worth of cuts and we told to make and 285 million more and the, within that framework there's a lot of talk about the, the problem about they're going to try and cut local radio services in england and i thought to myself well oh, hang on a minute here radio scotland is not a local broadcaster it is a national broadcaster and i took a look at bbc radio 4's output today let's ignore radio one radio two radio three you know with their specialist uh, uh, their specialist programming but radio four is a remarkable uh set of programs lots of lots of different ideas art entertainment science documentaries drama soap opera yes they've got the politics and it is an immensely different animal to bbc radio scotland and by reducing and taking away the arts element jazz classical music and piping for god's sake what you're doing is striking at the heart of a distinctive national broadcaster but does it bring into focus the fact that bbc radio scotland is not a national broadcaster within the bbc's remit it is a local broadcaster and be treated as such and the budgetary restrictions will mean it will shrink further and further into giving the public what they think the public wants because it's a ratings game but i always go back to the whole point and flick through channels occasionally we've probably all done it i don't know what i want sometimes until i chance upon it and see it and uh, the the amount of opportunity to engage with cultural activity in scotland and different kinds of program in scotland such as document documentaries and drama is being severely restricted by what's going on. And I think it's a scandal that we'll go if they get rid of jazz, classical music and piping, even though I may never listen to any of it.
0: And there is uh, I tweeted about this a wee while ago when it first broke. Um, and there is a petition that's been doing the rounds. If people want to sign it and um, we'll, we'll put the link into the thing we on the podcast. But yes, I mean, the, technically, B, the BBC Scotland is seen as part of nations and regions rather than local radio. Mm-hmm. So it may or may, but it'll still end up being subject to the same cuts. And the point you make is quite correct that this is all was always the problem for Radio Scotland in that it was facing. Uh, it was trying to pr- pr- provide for listeners the same service to delivered by radios one, two, three, four, five and yeah. six, basically. Um, and it was choosing where it pitched itself when I worked there and when it won, you know, during that time, it won the Sony Station of the Year Award. Um, it was pitching itself as a Scottish Radio 4. So it was mostly a speech network and it was kind of if you like whatever you want to call it, intelligent speech or whatever. Um, now, many things change and I'm not saying that they're necessarily bad things. But it, it and this is part probably part of the reason I left, actually, was that it took a fairly conscious decision to aim itself instead as a radio two stroke five station. Mm-hmm. So less speech, more sort of blended music and so on. And uh, when I was there, certainly doing a, a phone in, there was much more emphasis on just piling the callers in rather than having conversations with them. Which is what I objected to, because, yeah. you know, it seemed to me the whole point of it was to try to get somewhere with somebody rather than have seven people on saying, you know, roughly the same thing with no engagement. That was the point at the time. The the issue, you know, the interest wasn't engagement. If simply every every time we came off air, how many people did you get on? So that was, you know, that represented a change in the way things were working and they could have been right. They could have been wrong. I don't know. But I began to realize I was the odd one out because I was still working on a never mind the quality, feel the width kind of, you know, approach. Um, And clearly that was not what the new edict said. In fact, it was very explicit that it was going to try to move to a sort of easier listening. And in the, the course of that, much else has followed. You know, many of the things that have been dropped as being sort of surplus to requirements, come back to that sort of, you know, easy listening framing. Um, this is not to say that Radio 2 and 5 are path in any way at all, but there was a sort of lack of the primacy, really, of trying to get those speech programmes to be the absolute jewels in the crown. And actually, having written that obituary for Derek Bateman that was in the National this week or at the weekend, um, it struck me again, you know, what uh, an incredible team they used to be on Good Morning Scotland with far fewer resources than radio 4 they very often were absolutely knocking the spots off radio 4 in terms of you know what they could turn around on a morning and the real blooming uh focus that people like laser like focus that people like uh, Derek brought to it who had been all over the world you know in his previous kind of roles uh, as as a reporter and a correspondent so yeah we co- so I come to the on the music side of it um This is extremely poor. As you say, what what they've decided to do, I think, to save money and also to try and keep listeners, because what they found was that every time there was a junction, so moving from one program to another, you would tend to lose people at that point when they either had, you know, they'd heard the end of what they were interested in. They hadn't yet got caught up in the new one. So one of the solutions was to have longer programs, which would then Mm -hmm. sort of keep the listener. That's the style of Radio 5 as well. So that was basically importing the structures of Radio 5 Live into Radio Scotland thinking. So that's where we've got these long, long, you know, programs with one presenter. And, you know, that must be a tough one to keep up four or five days a week. But it also means that you get to the stage where the little specialist programs begin to look like they're the ones that are totally expendable. And the point point that's made in the petition um, is that there are so many jazz and classical composers and musicians who rely on having somebody that gives a toss about their output um, within radio, Radio Scotland, to to basically have a livelihood and to demonstrate that the aliveness of their art form in Scotland, Uh, the piping thing is utterly extraordinary, but I'm sure that Radio Scotland would turn around and say that piping features in quite a lot of other programmes. But, you know, there's like... (laughs) This is uh, this is the absolute jewel of piping practically in the world, the standards of piping. You spend your time, as I often do in the summer, roaming around Island Games and Highland Games to the Pibroch competitions. And the amount of energy, practice, tradition her, her, handed down from generation to generation, it's real. It's out there. It's a precious part of our heritage and to be chucking that away is just quite unbelievable so i hope people do sign that petition but there's clearly you know th- there's there's a pressure there and what will very possibly happen is even if there is some success in trying to put, roll back the cuts this time all of those guys are going to know that their you know collars are being felt essentially because uh, clearly be wants to move on in some respect and just dump a lot of the distinctive stuff in the evenings that makes for brilliant listening for people who actually want to know the richness of our culture and not just, you know, flip over to what is the most read.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is that. I mean, and uh, you see, you're talking about Good Morning Scotland. Um, uh, I'm not sure... You, you said to me, it was a, was a fascinating interview with the, the Tory MP, Caroline Noakes. Was that on Good Morning Scotland this morning? Uh,
0: it was this morning, just before eight o'clock. Yeah. I mean, she, she, was, she, was on, she was on talking about the proposal that they had about basically met, the, the menopause being something that could be listed, added to the characteristics that basically give you some protection in law from being dismissed. Um, and she was explaining that, It would be quite possible and she'd hoped that the british government would actually run a pilot to see if this worked given that they're a pretty big employer this would have been a pretty good way to work out whether this is a viable thing that could be added um you don't have to be a woman or gone through the menopause or have sympathy for women going through the menopause or anything like that to take this seriously because here we are in the one hand talking about staff shortages all over the place in the caring industries And the disappearance of women from the workforce around the age, you know, between the ages of late 40s up to 60s because of difficulties holding down normal patterns of work and behaviour because of the blinking menopause. So that you'd think if there was any kind of joined upness going on here, you'd begin to look at, you know, people will talk in the abstract about the importance of retention in the the NHS. Hmm. See, there's one way that you could actually think a lot more about retention if you focus on the big group, the big reasons that groups of people begin to find what is already a pretty impossible job utterly, utterly unmanageable. And there's other countries. I mean, just looking at Sweden, for example, one of the reasons that they have excellent elderly care and really sorted this is because they so valued the contribution made by 50 and 60 year old women that they were determined they would not be taken out of the workforce to care for elderly mothers, Yeah. which is, again, what happens. So you can have no sympathy at all for women with the menopause, but you can look at the fact that we now desperately need to keep such trained women as well. You know, they've gone through 30, 40 years of life experience. They're at the peak of their game in terms of the input they make to vital different industries. And then they begin to falter or completely fall out of things because of something that until recently you couldn't even mention in public was happening to you. So, yeah, that would have been really quite an enlightened thing to do. and. Clearly, Caroline Noakes' politics are, are kind of interesting in that while she was at it and laying in in no uncertain terms to the Conservatives for not having the wit to kind of, you know, even try to run a, a pilot on this, uh, she was also getting stuck into our um, our dear friend uh, Nadine Sahawi, who oh, yeah. has decided not to, you know, not to do the decent thing and step down. So she's she's kind of, You know, she's saying what an awful lot of people are thinking. Obviously, pretty much everybody's not in the Conservative Party as far as he's concerned. But actually, obviously, a lot of people within the party as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it was a pilot scheme in England. I know Monica Lennon, and I don't know, uh, has been pushing for uh, this to be... Piloted in Scotland as well, and apparently the reason that they're not running the pilot is because it could possibly discriminate against men. I'll leave that one lying out in there I mean, it's utter utter nonsense. It's it's worth a pilot. It really is, and I totally agree with you. I mean, having worked uh, in in further and higher education, uh the number of women in senior positions of vast experience even in teaching as well, in their 50s and 60s that should be retained within the workforces is, is there. But you said about uh, her having a dip at Nadim Zahawi, I, it's it was his. I mean, it's it's almost funny when I watched James Cleverley being interviewed by Laura Koonsberg on Sunday, and I, I don't know if you remember a, a series called Hogan's Heroes, you know, not about massively. The- Oh, who was here? There was a sergeant Schultz in this German prisoner of war camp. He used to say, "I know nothing. I know nothing." And that's a terrible accent. And that was James Cleverley on Sunday. He was put up there at the plausible deniability candidate, just back from. Uh, from an overseas trip on Friday saw his constituents he said then she went shopping on Saturday so he knew nothing at all beyond which that which had been said about Nadim Zahawi what he did say about Nadim Zahawi was this is an entrepreneur who came from nowhere who employs hundreds of people to which uh Laura Kounder said yeah but that shouldn't preclude him from paying the tax that he should have been paying he then came in with the oh the careless he was careless and that's not oh oops, I dropped some money down the, the down the drain there, I let it slip. It is actually a technical definition which equals to negligence on the if you're not if you're being careless in those terms, you are being negligent in your tax returns. So I mean that he's uh he said he got the uh, Sunak's full confidence. Well, Frank Lampard, the manager of Everton FC, had the full confidence of his board and he got punted a couple of days ago. So it's that, that, that football thing going on there. But it is, they're also playing the uh, Sue Gray report uh, card, which is we can't talk about this because there's an inquiry going on. Well, there's the ethics inquiry. Um, I really don't see how Zahawi could survive. And if Sunak had any political nous, he would have dumped him sharpish. He would have got rid of him. He would have got rid of him. And and that just reveals the weakness at the heart of Sunak as a prime minister and leader of his party.
0: Indeed. I mean, I see that uh, the star, which had the lettuce, um, if you remember, for Liz Truss, is basically saying that there's no point in even buying another lettuce because he won't (laughs) be here long enough to justify it. You know, by the time they get the lettuce. Uh, which is, I mean, like well done to them for just managing to corner such a kind of visual image of something uh, there. But I mean, it is, it is, it is completely ridiculous. And actually, it's really worth looking just at some of the kind of list of what happened here, because, as ever, it's the denial and the cover-ups that yes. will get everybody in this. Because way back in July of last year, the Independent started reporting uh, on, you know, problems with his uh, tax. Uh, payments and um, he then sent legal threats to the paper yep. there was a tax blogger who put up more stuff more legal threats sent to him and then suddenly you know it is an actual story so all of that legal threats actually you know and not just inaccurate but just completely wrong at the time when he was also chancellor it's quite astonishing really And then, yep, October, Sunak makes him Tory chair. Now, I was listening to a thing last night where um, one of the Meg Hillier, who's chair of the Public Accounts Committee Mm -hmm. in the Commons, was talking and saying that the civil service would have delivered a totally full uh, background report on everything to do with somebody who was about to be made a cabinet member and She's quite convinced, but, you know, she's not she wasn't on a sort of vendetta mode. She was actually being to the to the presenter disturbingly reasonable about it all. So she was simply pointing out that there would be a lot within that which she was quite convinced the civil service would have would have said about the fines that were part of the whole payment, um, which apparently had been made by the time Sunak appointed him as chair of the Tory party. So. She's thinking that actually, although Rishi Sunak thinks he's kicked this basically, you know, mm-hmm. down down the line a little bit, because of 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 requiring this whole investigation to happen, his role now will be investigated. Whereas yeah. if he'd actually sacked Zahawi, you know, that would have been the bad would have been entirely on on Nadine Zahawi. Nobody, well, you know, there'd been a bit of people coming for for Rishi Sunak, but the speed of his reaction would have meant you know, pretty little, whereas now the story could easily jump onto exactly what he was told. And then if certain parts of evidence are either redacted or not allowed to be looked for. And she also made the point that even in her committee, the Public Accounts Committee, it's very difficult to get full details from HMRC unless the recipient is willing And, um, you know, it's quite possible that Zahawi will just block amounts of information being released to them as we're still talking about something where we don't even know the amounts that we're talking about. And, you know, it's extraordinary that this. Whole discussion can be happening about a guy who until recently was chancellor of this entire country. Yes. And we don't know. You know, everybody sort of goes, oh, well, I know this. I know that. Oh, but I don't know that when they're tottered out to have to try and represent him. I mean, this morning it was Chris Philp who had the, you know, unpleasant task of trying to do what is now becoming quite a Tory skill, actually, is yes. being trotted out to know a certain amount about somebody's misdemeanours, but suddenly a total knowledge vacuum about the key points you're being asked. And then, of course, there's the long list of them. I mean, Boris Johnson started it with Owen Patterson, um, who was done for lobbying. He had 100,000 mm-hmm. quid's worth of lobbying he hadn't declared. Boris's decision to stick by his man and entirely change Contemplate changing the entire workings of the commons to simply accommodate this one guy's existence was essentially what led to his downfall. And since then, there's been Suella Braverman, you know, appointed by Sunak after, you know, leaking sensitive information. Gavin Williamson resigning over bullying. Dominic Raab being investigated for bullying. Sunak himself doing the seatbelt thing. (laughs) Boris whose who's uh, who's who's the secret loan is kind of being looked at by the parliamentary standards lot. He is back in another capacity at the Privileges Committee over the COVIDs parties, Lark or not Lark in March. So it's kind of like, you know, if you've lived long enough and you remember all that that guff, that came with John Major when it was back to basics. Do you remember that?
1: Oh, gosh, yes. The you man know, who was having the affair at that fair with, point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Edwina Currie, family and, values. I mean, yes. the
0: second that that somebody, especially a Tory, thinks that they can kind of paper over what by that stage were just massive cracks in the whole edifice of Tory thinking after all that long time of, of Thatcher at the helm, that you can paper it over with some sort of, you know, just just spoken commitment to family values. And then, of course, it's almost like the lighthouse attracts the storm. The second you have the arrogance to say that when you're having an affair yourself, you just, you know, all of his cabinet then began to seem to, you know, be done for various uh, sexual misdemeanors, and so it seems with uh, with Rishi Sunak from his professional—I can't even remember—integrity professional oh, blah uh, blah. Yeah, you yeah. know that he said when he, you know, he he had taken over. Suddenly, this now seems to be just the, the, the most kind of the, the least integrity. Well, of any government since the last one, to be fair, <laughs> since you know they don't they don't really have a very uh, high bar anymore. But you know, th- th- this I think this is. Nadim Sahai has just got to go. Um, And I I don't know, I don't see that he can really stay beyond the end of the week. The only thing that would help him would be something else coming into the headlines. But at the moment, the the fact that they actually had a go at so many papers um, who who tried to run this story before means there's quite a lot of people with a grudge match in this who are determined to see this one through because they were threatened, you know, completely wrongly with legal action.
1: Well, I noticed one bit of the narrative was, was was attempting to actually shift the blame on why didn't the civil servants step in? Why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? And I think it was David Penman of the First Division Association, an incredibly articulate Scott, who's the head of that, uh, that trade union, said, the buck stops with the prime minister. It's the prime minister who's the head, the prime minister decides on ethics, the prime minister decides, the prime minister decides you can get as much advice or information, but it's up to the prime minister. And again, that's that that point. You were talking about lettuces, Leslie. Sorry, and it it just struck me. We've got a mushroom incident going on. Uh, You're a fan of Outlander, aren't you? I am yes Diana Gabaldon uh she she a bit of a bit of a stushy I think she would probably say
0: Gabaldon but I mean I could Gabba. be wrong but anyway ah,
1: oh, uh, well look Gabaldon, yeah, fine, Gabaldon. Fine. yeah but you you she says, yeah, anyway, I'll move on. My, I apologize for my pronunciation there. Uh, she, she said that um, uh, she was asked by a fan, what was the tourie the that uh, Sam Hugan, I hope I've got that right, was wearing uh, in one scene? And she says, if you're referring to the ghost, he was wearing a Scotch bonnet now that was a and everyone used to call used to say Scotch until the SNP came into power in the mid 20th century and kind of banned the word Scotch now a Scotch bonnet as a mushroom that's my tenuous link to lettuces there but I mean I thought it was utterly bizarre that she, she would jump in on this and someone who has obviously got a great interest in 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 Scottish history it's an immensely successful series even though I've not watched one frame of it and I'd never heard anybody using the word Scotch. And if I was going to look at any background to it, Professor Ewan Cameron of Scottish, not Scotch history, said it, was in, it kind of came out of vogue in the 17th century uh, by people who were non-Scots. By the mid-19th century, it was out of fashion. And by the 20th century, it was seen as archaic and patronising. You know, so I really don't know why she's got herself involved in this, but she's simply dug a hole for herself, as I say, which, is, which is quite surprising. But I thought it was a, a bit lighter than our, our normal talk, but a Scotch bonnet, ma'am, is a mushroom. It, uh, I've never heard, I've, I've heard it called a, a tam-o-shanter or, or a bonnet, but never a Scotch bonnet.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, God, I've, I've no idea. I mean, um, from looking at it on, on the national, all she's done is kind of reply to a tweet. I mean, that's what happens these days. You know, you can mm. make a massive story. Oh, yeah. out of Just a casual comment you make, especially when you've got as many followers as this. But I mean, yeah, I've not heard of a scotch bonnet, but, you know, there's plenty of aspects of men's formal wear in the tartan department that I might not just have <laughs> the right handle on. But yeah, this thing about scotch, I mean, I've even got a friend who doesn't like using Scottish. Oh right. Um. And use uh, Scott yeah. uses
1: Scots. Scots. Yeah. And actually,
0: I've sort of taken to that a wee mm-hmm. bit. I mean, we had a long yep. conversation about it. And I mean, I, it, I wish I was uh, linguistically more competent because I can't actually pinpoint what it is about it. The ish thing makes it seem almost sort of childish or some some sort mm-hmm. of this. It's a some sort of diminution of the characteristic. So that Scots, I talk about the Scots Parliament now or Scots yeah. MPs. I, I tend to not use even Scottish, Scotch. I mean, you can sit and go through the etymology of the word, but um, Scotch just now does seem to imply Scotch on the rocks or you know that Scotch of any other thing than whisky, uh, and even then
1: it's whisky really. It's whisky. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's just just seems to be a kind of a, a you know, like from a bygone era. However. Diana Gabaldon is writing about a bygone era. She lives in her head in a bygone era. So and she lives in America where, you know, people have different ideas about what they call things and very possibly they call Scotch things, Scotch things, Scotch the whole time. I have no idea. But, um, yeah, it seems to have caused a bit of a stushy there, right enough. (laughs) So, um, yeah, who, who cares?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it was just the, the, the fact that the, the, the chipping about when the SNP came to power in the, the mid-20th century, I thought, well, hang on a minute here. Even, even the least informed political person would know the SNP weren't in power in, from the 1950s in Scotland.
0: Can I just do one last plug? Because it's so important that we haven't, it hasn't got raised otherwise. It's so important that people turn out on Tuesday, next Tuesday night, Um, to support the Brexit rally if you're in Edinburgh or in that area at all. I fully realise that for a lot of people, um, EU membership is not the thing that floats the boat for them about independence or politics generally. But, you know, it's so increasingly clear when you look at the map of Scotland that developed from the Brexit vote onwards. it, It demonstrated an absolute cliff edge at the border. You know, if anybody wants to argue the border doesn't exist, sure, you've got all those Mm. elections, but the Brexit vote is unbelievable. Even wards right up to the border were voting Remain and 100 yards away on the other side of the border, they were voting Leave. So, you know, we have something that that has demonstrated to the rest of Europe, who obviously have a bit of skin in the game on this one. It's an it's a subject they're interested in. So they see that. They didn't see the differences of endless elections. Everyone's got elections. There's been one vote to leave the European Union in 40 years. We were on one end of it. England was on the other end. Everyone saw that. So, of course, there's also been the harms related to Brexit, which we're trying to showcase if nobody else is. But the important point is that it demonstrated the uh, political difference between two countries that simply cannot be accommodated within one unitary state run the way it is run by the Conservatives with no prospect of change from Labour. So that's why it's important we give a toss. The only people who are liable to be on the street on Tuesday night are Scots in Edinburgh and in a couple of other locations. There's four in Dundee and Angus and there's one elsewhere I think in Dumfries. But the main um, action this time will absolutely be in Edinburgh there's a torch lit procession through Holyrood Park that starts um, up at the Pollock halls of residence, uh, gathering from five, leaving 5.30 sharp to walk down through the Galloping Glen, which is the Dooney bit of the Holyrood Park, down towards the rally that will start at six o'clock. We've got Alan Smith. Uh, we've got Lorna Slater, Jim Fairley. We've got a lot of European speakers. We've got a lot of music. And we want you to bring as much in the way of lights as you possibly can. We've got some probably not very blockbusting prizes (laughs) for the best (laughs) illuminated banners. So there'll be a bit of a laugh with that as well. But the whole point is, once again, to be visible and impactful when Scotland's in the news. We can't as ever guarantee coverage, although strangely enough, last time when we put the effort in, suddenly it turned out the media was indeed there because it is a story. So I'm giving this big licks because it's so important. Don't please be marginal about this. If you can come on Tuesday night, please come to swell the ranks because it's not good enough to wait till the Saturday after or sometime that's more convenient for us. News is a cruel blinking beast. It works on the day that it's in the headlines. And that day is going to be the 31st because it's the day that we were essentially dragged out of the EU against our will. So please come. And you can find more at timeforscotland.scot.
1: Absolutely, Leslie. I'll put that link up as well. And on that, fingers crossed, it goes well. I'm sure it will. We'll see you next week, Chums.